This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and joining me today is my fellow co-host Duncan Barrett. Hello Duncan. Hi Clara, how are you? I'm good. (laughs) Nice to see you in the flesh for once. We are recording together actually in person in my office um, in London School of Economics. We're both live. This won't be live. This won't be live. (laughs) It's live while we're recording. It's live while we're recording. Today, in honour of Father's Day here in the UK, we're talking about fathers and Star Trek. So the dads, you know, the fathers, the good dads, the bad dads, and the downright strange dads. And now, as most of you might have guessed, I'm not a father myself. And lucky for me, I am sitting next to one. Duncan can help me out because he is a dad. So Duncan, that makes me an expert, really. <laughs> tell us a little bit about being a dad. About being a dad, wow. Well, my son was actually born on Father's Day, funnily enough. So weirdly, Father's Day is not something I'd ever really been that aware of. But uh, I am now because <laughs> it's like my son's sort of unofficial birthday in a way. So it's a kind of, I don't know, in some ways that feels more real to me as his birthday than his actual birthday because like... I don't know why, really. Like, I was aware of it all day before he was born that it was Father's Day, and then he came along. It's and like fate. There you go. I know, and it was my Father's Day present. But funnily enough, being a dad and, and Star Trek are quite closely connected to me because I think I've talked about this before on Trek FM, though possibly not on our podcast. It was really after he was born, which was nearly three years ago, that I started, well, first of all, getting back into Star Trek because I hadn't really watched that much Star Trek for a long time. And it was it was the staying up. The only way he would sleep after he was first born was wrapped in a sling on someone's chest. And so I ended up like staying up literally all night on the sofa. And I bought the remastered TNG uh, Blu-rays and basically started working my way uh, through them from beginning to end. And I also discovered Trek FM podcasts. And the Trek FM podcasts were kind of what kept me going in the night during the sort of months of like, you know, 3am <laughs> feeding sessions and oh things, going downstairs, you know, getting... We had this awful machine that made formula milk, but it was, you know, if you, if you were sleep deprived, it was a bit of a nightmare. So I would get up, uh, stick my headphones in, listen to a little bit of To The Journey to <laughs> kind of keep me going because they had the right kind of positivity somehow to wake me up in the middle of the night and then go and get this wretched machine machine working and get the milk sorted out so weirdly being a dad and Trek FM and Star Trek are all strangely intermingled in my life so fatherhood like being a new father is a little bit similar to being on an epic journey through space yeah you could say that definitely you know there are (laughs) new experiences there are kind of uh, stresses and (laughs) dangers to deal with there's the responsibility of you know prime directive yeah exactly the prime directive yeah yeah you know working out what to tell them what not to tell them (laughs) new life encountering new life yeah new life new civilizations (laughs) all of that 
So I was thinking, because we're going to, obviously we're going to talk about fathers today, I thought we've kind of split up into different types of fathers and the, probably the easiest one to start with, because there is so many examples of this in Star Trek, is the bad dads, mm. the, the bad fathers. Um, the ones that are not necessarily absent, because we'll get on to the absent fathers, and some of those fathers are absent not through any fault of their own, as in, i.e., they've been killed. Mm. Um, but the bad dads are the ones who are either there and bad, as in they are irresponsible or unkind or difficult, or they aren't there because of some sort of estrangement or rift caused by, I don't know, I guess you could say personality clash or maybe a lack of responsibility to their children. So the first bad dad, we have loads of bad dads. <laughs> Star we? Trek is replete with bad dads. We have I'd so say, many yeah. bad dads. <laughs> so the first one, I mean, there are several ones that really stick out, but before we go into those, um, the first one I really was thinking of was Worf. Mm. The, mm. I mean, the bad Klingon dad, because I don't think we have any examples of other Klingon fathers. Mm. Doing. That's an interesting question. Do we have any other Klingon fathers? And I mean, is he even a Klingon father? Because he was kind of raised by humans, so... But he wants to be kind of ultra Klingon, and I suppose that's part of the problem with Alexander. When yeah. you have that episode where, is it New Ground, where Alexander comes on board the Enterprise, it's all very much Worf trying to, like, impose his kind of Klingon honour and so on on Alexander. Mm. And he even says to him in that episode, you know, my family were taken from me, the only thing I had left that was Klingon was my honour. And that's... Which gives you a sort of insight into why Worf is so kind of obsessive and so kind of hardcore Klingon for this Klingon raised by humans. But even in that episode, you sort of start to get he tries, at least, to be fair to him in that episode. Wolf is trying. Like, he, he does get that it's a responsibility. He gets, he sort of has to try and make the best of it. But he is just putting his foot in it over and over again and not dealing with his son's emotional needs, really. I mean, it's interesting. That episode is, is one of those episodes where Councillor Troy does a really good job as a counsellor you know she has this kind of counselling session with him she encourages him to sort of see things differently she says to him you know do you think it's possible that Alexander maybe felt abandoned by you because you shuffled him off to your parents basically at the first opportunity and his mother had just died as well and I think that it, it's kind of interesting that you, you you do see Worf sort of trying to be a better dad and kind of growing again but then you see I mean I, I just rewatched this week um, A Fistful of Datas <laughs> which is one of my favourite episodes but I'd sort of forgotten how I mean, in some ways, that seems like a nice bonding episode between the two of them. But it's also the episode where you have that scene at the beginning where Worf is basically trying to get out of spending any time with Alexander by convincing Captain Picard that all these things are urgent and need doing when, in fact, he's supposed to be spending time with his family. And I suppose that almost encapsulates Worf's kind of approach to Alexander is it's like, you know, yes, well, if he has to, then he'll do stuff with him and he'll do whatever, you know, being a dad means. But if he can possibly avoid it or find something else to do, he will be elsewhere. He also seems a little bit embarrassed by Alexander, doesn't mm, he? Mm. Especially in like later series, like in DS9, um, when Alexander's basically a young man. I, I think one of the things that really struck me rewatching some of the um, episodes um, in which Alexander appears is that how small he is, mm. how little he is. He's really a very little child. Mm. Um, and how much Worf almost treats him like he's an adult. And I just get this feeling that Worf doesn't really actually know how to cope with small children but even when Alexander's sl slightly older he doesn't seem to be able to cope with him as a like a teenager or a young man either there's this sort of indication right at the beginning of Next Generation that Picard isn't good with children mm. and he believes himself not to be good with children but he actually turns out to be okay with children and he's a lot better with smaller children than Worf is mm. and 
so but the thing is when you're when you're a parent you don't get to choose you don't get to choose your child that's for one thing mm. I mean, your child is completely random what your child is going to be like but also you don't you have them for all, the entire span of their lives so you have them from whether like you said like a baby that basically is waking up every three hours mm. to a small you know child who might have difficulty expressing their emotions mm. to a teenager who might be surly all the way up into an adult who may make decisions about their future that you don't agree with mm. in like I'm thinking about you know obviously Sarah and Spock and stuff mm. and so you have to accept them at all those points of, of development and so I actually think that's one of the reasons why Wolf is a bad dad is because he you know like like oh he doesn't really enjoy communicating with a small child it's like well tough luck man he should have used contraceptive I mean <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, th- he thought if it was on the holodeck it didn't count basically <laughs> So, yeah, exactly. I mean, holodeck, like a natural concept. Yeah. <laughs> what stays in the, what happens in the holodeck stays in the holodeck. Mm. Obviously not, but not in this in case. This instance, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, which is funny though, because in later series in DS9, he babysits Miles O'Brien's son, Kiri, mm. Kiriyoshi. And I just, this is just a little bit of trivia, which I totally found out the other day, was that Kiriyoshi is actually portrayed by an actress called Clara. That's amazing. <laughs> I feel kind of offended that, <laughs> like, that, you know, my namesake <laughs> was used to portray a male baby. But anyway. Um, I think that's quite common on TV, isn't it? That, that kind actually of weird? girls play male, like, children. Yeah. I feel that's kind of weird. Mm, maybe maybe girls are better at acting. I don't know. Or maybe people or think at that age babies are baby, just gender, gender neutral. Yeah, yeah. But they're not really, though, are they? I mean, well, can you tell? I mean... Like I guess, a tiny baby, you can't really tell. I suppose I, I never occurred to me that Kiriyoshi was actually a girl. I always, no. when you see the Kiriyoshi on the screen, I thought mm. it was, well, everyone's saying he's a boy. So. Yeah. But also, so, I mean, I can't even remember how they dress Kiriyoshi, but I mean, you know, in, in the real world, people dress their babies, you know, in pink or blue or, yeah, that's true. or whatever. And if you don't do that, people get confused and don't know what to say about it. I mean, like my son has, uh, well, he did have for a long time, quite long blonde hair and people often thought he was a girl. You know, so <laughs> and then he had a haircut, and everyone was like, "Oh, it's obvious he's oh, a boy." Oh, it's a boy. So it's you, you know, the <laughs> fact happens. is, you kind of you maybe assume that children are more obviously male or female than they are. I mm. think in some ways, do you know but what I mean? People are taking, actually, it's to do with things like haircuts and, yeah. and clothes and all those sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> just that was weird. Um, but yeah, he does babysit Kiriyoshi yeah. to try and prove to Jadzia that he would be a good father. Yeah. I'm thinking. She's got an example right there yeah. already, which is Alexander. That's true. That's kind of weird that that... Yeah, I, I suppose you get the sense that he wants to prove that like, he can get it right out of the, you know, out of the gate, mm. second time round kind of thing, because he's sort of aware that he's kind of messed up a bit with Alexander. And you're right, she's certainly aware of that, because, you, you know, in that episode of Deep Space Nine where Alexander comes back, you know, their relationship is terrible. And, and the weird thing is, you know, you were saying about Worf not accepting that Alexander's not like him, not like a Klingon. The weird thing is that what he says to him in that episode is, it's almost the opposite. He's really a, kind of affronted that Alexander has signed up for the Klingon um, defence force. And he, he keeps saying, you know, you didn't want any of this. You rejected all of this. You know, why are you doing this? This isn't really what you want. This is not true. This is not you. And I think there's that weird sense that Worf has sort of, he's almost made peace with the fact that Alexander is not, his son in the sense that he wanted to have a son mm. but what that entails is almost forgetting that he exists which is why we haven't <laughs> seen him for many years you know and then the fact that he dares to kind of come back uh, and and you know be someone that isn't again isn't quite what Worf expected is kind of 
something he doesn't seem able to cope with. I guess like a little baby is easier. You don't have any of those issues. You don't have any of those kind of, you know, psychological issues. Um, but it, it is interesting, again, in that episode where he's babysitting, he freaks out massively because the baby has an accident and Worf goes into like, you know, this kind of complete shame mode. I'm a failure. I'll be a terrible father. You can't trust me to look after the baby. You know, he completely overreacts to all this stuff in a way that, again, you sort of think he's kind of, he's not really able to just kind of sit back and relax into being a dad. Somehow it's got to be, because it's Worf, it's got to be like all or nothing. And it's, it's a bit over intense, maybe. Yeah. I mean, he's not the most relaxed mm. of characters, are they? So... And he does kind of attack everything with gusto, I suppose. So you can see him doing the same thing with personal family relationships. I actually think being married to him would be really stressful. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, he he kind of takes over planning their wedding, doesn't he? He's insistent about certain things. And you're right about the contact with Alexander, though. Like, even just a few lines in the script here and Mm. there over the course of, like, the series um, would indicate that he is in contact with his son. But there's Mm. none of that. Compared to, for instance, the fact that Cisco has regular communications with his own father back mm-hmm. on back on Earth, or I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of anyone else who's in contact with their family. <laughs> they tend, people tend to not contact their family much. I suppose, like towards the end of Voyager, like Tom's in contact mm-hmm. with his father. And mm-hmm. but so moving on to another bad father, a bad dad. Now I don't know if this guy is a bad dad or whether he just has communication problems or he is it's because i mean some of this might also be down to the species of alien so i was thinking of serik i think you knew i was going to say i think you're making excuses (laughs) (laughs) i I, I I actually just i watched a video on youtube today that was basically (laughs) who's the worst dad golda cut or (laughs) serik and i think there's definitely a case to be made that serik is the worst dad in star trek really oh my god because he is just he's he's got a I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's not even like passive aggressive. It's like kind of, you know, he, he's got so many issues about his, you know, his yeah. children and, and exactly that thing of like expecting them to do what you want them to do, treating them as kind of extension of your own ego rather than as people in their own right. And, you know, we see that with, with Spock in the original series and in the films, I suppose. And then we see it again in Discovery with Lethe. And I think that's a fantastic episode. Yeah. But again, it's just like, Oh my God, we thought you were awful. <laughs> you know, like, oh. It gets worse. It gets worse. It's like he's sort of digging himself into a pit <laughs> of like, you know, just how crap a, a parent could he be? And you do have that really great scene at the end of Lethe where Burnham basically says, she, she has that line, doesn't she? she? She says, you could do better than that. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the kind of, she really puts him in his place in a way that no one has sort of dared to do before somehow. Um, she calls him father as well. She's yeah, very deliberate yeah. in calling him father. So she's sort of saying, even if you're saying we're not related, mm. we have this relationship. You are my father mm. and I see you as my father. So you can't skirt away from this responsibility. Mm. You mm. can't, you can't like sort of logic your way out. Like can't argue semantics out of it really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right. It's hard to have sympathy with him. I mean, he is in a situation where he has certain ideas of what his children should be like and what they should go on to do. And you've got to get the feeling at the very end of his life, he's just like, I just give up because, you know, when both your children end up in Starfleet and your other yeah. one and your other son ends up like the head of like a religious cult. I mean, and none of them have gone to the Vulcan Science Academy. Mm. None of them become ambassadors. I suppose Spock becomes ambassador, mm. but much later. There's a very interesting line in, is it Unification? I think at the beginning of it in the Next Generation episode where he's Sarek is dying and Picard goes to speak to Sarek to try and find out where Spock is because they they think Spock's on Romulus Mm. and negotiating with the Romulans and 
he sort of says something, he starts talking about, he's reminiscing, because he's obviously very ill and he's, he's kind of, I suppose, sort of mentally out of it. And he's reminiscing about Spock and how Spock used to go away and uh, disappear into the mountains and he, and, and Sarek would want to know where he was and reprimand him when he came back and Spock would never tell him where he was going and that kind of thing. And then Sarek sort of says, you know, I would punish him, but he would do it anyway. Mm. Um, and he sort of says, but I admired him for that. I admired him for his, his, sort of determination and strength of will. Mm. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He write, he says it much better than I, I have. Mm. So underneath it all, I think Sarek, I honestly do believe Sarek has a deep love and admiration for his children. Mm. And I think part of it is because he's a Vulcan. This is something that he can really ever clearly express to them in an emotional way and just so happens that he married a human woman so his son is half human so Spock is going to be more emotional than Sarek you know Burnham is a, is a human woman so she is going to be obviously more emotional than Sarek Cyborg chose emotion he chose mm. an emotional path so he's going to be more emotional than Sarek so I sometimes wonder if Sarek's just a bit overwhelmed by <laughs> the emotional demands of his three children who yeah who perhaps are living a less reserved, restrained, or less restrictive life, maybe? I don't know. I, you're right, though. Would he have been a... You, you mean, had he had, like, a, a sort of conventional Vulcan child who... Had had Tuvok been his son, yeah. would he have been a great dad to Tuvok? You know, yeah, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then maybe Tuvok would have just gone along with everything he was told and done what his dad wanted him to do and, you know, joined the science thingy and you, you know and not being his own person and I suppose that's the problem is that Sarek very much seems to feel that you know there's that interesting sense in Lethe as well where the the other pretty nasty Vulcan guy sort of talks about his children as experiments basically you know he, and he, he says we'll let one of them in and not the other as if they're a kind of scientific experiment that he's been doing and I think maybe there is this idea that again Sarek is kind of He's sort of using his children. Do you know what I mean? He's not really allowing them to be their own people. He's kind of, like I say, he sees them as extensions of himself or he sees them as, you know, which is understandable to some degree, I suppose, that people feel like their reputation is affected by the behaviour of their children. You know, if their children do something shameful, like Wolf, I suppose, you know, his son keeps stealing and, and, you know, getting into trouble at school. You can understand he feels embarrassed by that. But at the same time, they're just not allowing them to do their own thing, you know. It, whereas, say, obviously, Cisco in Deep Space Nine, you know, his son doesn't want to join Starfleet. He wants to become a writer. I mean, there's a bit of a sort of wobble about some of these things, maybe. But essentially, he supports him to do what he wants to do. You know, it's not anything that he was ever interested in himself. He, but he accepts that his son is his own person. And he even says that when Jake stays behind on the station when he should have evacuated. He, said, he says, you know, he's a man. He can make his own decision. I don't like it. But, you know... He he respects his son, I suppose, is the difference. Whereas, you know, Sarek, I don't know that... I mean, yeah, maybe he comes to respect... He, well, he, like, you're right, he says he respected Spock for these things and so on, but the same as the way he treats them is not really with respect. He treats them as kind of pawns to be, you know, yeah, there's a played around with somehow. There's a double standard when it comes to treating Spock with respect because mm. he obviously treats his wife with respect. Mm. Uh, from what we see on screen and in, in, in like the sort of novels that are written afterwards, which I'm not sure are canon, but are part mm. of the whole Star Trek franchise universe. He is clear that he's very in love with his wife. Mm. Um, and he obviously, I think for a, the inconvenience of to a Vulcan to marrying a human, because I think it would be inconvenient to a Vulcan mm. to marry a human and introduce that human into Vulcan society, which seems to be quite xenophobic. 
I think you'd have to be in love with your wife mm. in order to make that commitment. And Vulcans, as we know, don't make marital commitments lightly. There's a whole ceremony and it's all a big thing, you know, people mm. might fight to the de- fight to the death. <laughs> but I think that so so he's obviously willing to accept the human aspects of Amanda, mm. the emotionalism, you know, perhaps the empathy that she feels, like the maybe the irrationality that Vulcans see in humans. He's not willing to accept any of that in Spock. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, if if you had a child with a human woman, you knew this child was going to be half human. Why are you willing to accept those traits in your wife, but not those traits in your son? But I actually think that's quite realistic. I mm. think in real life, sometimes people can um, have partners and they can like, because it's a romantic love, which is very different than the kind of love that you have for your child. They can like those aspects of their partner, but not like those aspects reflected in the child. Mm. That's one of the things I don't like about Sarek. I think, especially in that scene in uh is it the final frontier the one the movie with where they meet god yeah, yeah. at the center of the universe yeah <laughs> <laughs> the god one the cyborg actually cyborgs in it yeah, yeah and um and there's that flashback sort of vision where sarah yeah. kind of like rejects spock literally right after he's been born like at birth mm. and says something like oh he's so human i'm thinking he just came out of a human woman like what the hell <laughs> what are you expecting you know yeah. and i think that one of the major things that shows that Sarek's a bad dad is that he doesn't speak to spock for like 18 years mm. that's a long time to not talk to your child mm. because they've made a different career decision mm. i mean that's that's huge mm. I and mean, it's like i think it's 18 years 18 or 17 it's like a big long period long of time, time. Yeah, yeah. so that's pretty horrific but it's that sense also that i suppose what we see in lethe is that because we we learn this sort of new bit of information that basically sarah chose spock over burnham and so it's that kind of you get this sense that when Sarek does something like that you know he cuts spock off it's out of this kind of guilt that he feels himself that he has but he's projecting that onto Spock as kind of as him doing wrong somehow as him you know I don't know how he frames it you know kind of uh, but basically sort of sort of dishonoring him in some way by not doing what his father wants him to do but really the root of it is his own behavior is you know bad and he can't kind of acknowledge that he can't kind of accept that you know to the extent that he is you know that whole episode is all about the shame that he feels about this decision that he's made but that he can't acknowledge to anyone that he won't speak of you know and even to Burnham at the end she tries to talk to him about it and he's sort of evasive and he's kind you know he's kind of um still putting up this front and i suppose that's what's so it's interesting because you know Sarek we have this character i mean Sarek is a wonderful character he's this sort of noble ambassador he's very sort of um dignified very sort of you know, an admirable character in some ways in terms of his outward behaviour and the work that he does for the Federation and all these things, and obviously a wonderful performance. But at the same time, he has this kind of, in his own family, he's he's a real failure somehow. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's not living up to what anyone really would hope he would be. And, you know, even in, say, in yesteryear, you have Spock saying... He says to him at the end, I think, doesn't he? You know, he, he says, try to understand your son better. You know, there's this sense that Sarek is just constantly being offered these lessons to learn to become a better person and failing to kind of take them up somehow, you know. I often wonder how good an ambassador he is. <laughs> like, I can't, I'm like, how in a situation where two like species are neck and neck and they mm. like hate each other, how would like Sarek walking in change anything but i suppose well he's very calm isn't he he's very, he's very sort of calm, calm and measured and you know, you know maybe that <laughs> very logical maybe yeah. logic is the way forward in mm. international diplomacy mm. so <laughs> another there's a there's going to be a theme that's going to come up that you're going to see which is that 
Fathers generally don't like their children entering Starfleet. So another example of a bad dad. I mean, I don't know if we have it is as explicit, but mm. it is sort of suggested a lot. Is Jean-Luc Picard's dad, Maurice Picard, who didn't approve of him entering Starfleet. Now there's... Picard enters Starfleet quite young, a little bit like Spock. They, you know... I mean, a lot, well, actually most Starfleet officers enter Starfleet Academy young, aren't they? Mm. Like, normally like teenagers. So they're making this lifelong like commitment, really to basically just going to change the whole course of their lives. They're going to go into space when they're really quite young mm. individuals. And I think I read, it was the autobiography of Picard and it's a book. So obviously it might not be canon, but it's something that's kind of part of the Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. And it sort of did imply that he kind of left home and he entered Starfleet to try and get away a little bit from his father and his brother. Well, they're both real bullies. I mean, we see that in, you know, obviously we see the brother bullying him in family, but we also see the father. I think the only time we see the father is in Tapestry, isn't it? Where he has a kind of brief vision of him and he's he's basically just, basically just bullying him. You yeah. know? I mean, really nasty piece of work, you know, probably the most abusive. I don't know if he's the most abusive dad in Star Trek. I don't know where we're going next, but, you know, <laughs> you know definitely a pretty nasty character, really. And... This did make me wonder a little bit if, I mean, Picard is quite a reserved individual, but then I wonder mm-hmm. if he's always going to be reserved anyway, just because of the way that he is. But I mean, part of this might be down to the actual character of the person, mm-hmm. but I also wondered a little bit if perhaps maybe he wasn't shown a huge amount of affection by mm-hmm. this perhaps maybe reserved, distant, bullying father. And they all seem like a bit of an uptight family, don't they, really? I mean, his mm. sister-in-law is kind of a sweet person, and he's obviously got a lot of affection for his nephew. Mm. But he has this conflictive relationship with his brother and his father, and um, from what we see, the tiny bit that we see. So I just thought that, that was definitely an example of another kind of crappy dad. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also, it made me think when you said that about Patrick Stewart, obviously, is a big advocate for, you, you know, domestic violence, charities, and so on, because his father was a real... Um, you know, uh, by all accounts, a bit of a nasty piece of work, you know, very kind of abusive, violent, um, you you know, abusing his mother, I think, more than him. But at the same time, he grew up, you know, witnessing this. And, you know, he's talked about, you know, the police coming around and saying to his mother, well, you know, you must have said something to provoke him, you know, and the kind Mm -hmm. of the extent to which that kind of behaviour was accepted at that time. But also, in his father's case, I think he saw it as a kind of, ultimately came to see it as a sort of, almost like sort of PTSD, that was a kind of war related thing that his father had served in the war and then came back with all this anger but I read an interview with Patrick Stewart where he said for years the one emotion that he didn't feel comfortable acting was anger and he felt like he could only fake it he couldn't kind of really feel it and I don't know whether that's you know with Picard we see obviously he's a very you know a bit like Sarek he's a very calm person he's he's he doesn't have he's not quick to anger at all he's probably he's sort of the most kind of calm and cool and collected and reasonable of the captains, probably. That's sort of his defining feature. And maybe that kind of does tie in a little bit with, you you know, both his father and his brother, to some extent, are a bit more sort of, sort of emotionally pushy. Do you know what I mean? And kind of bullying and kind of um, forcing their feelings on you in a way, whereas Picard is much more reserved. Yeah, I mean, he's not... It's hard to imagine Picard getting really angry, isn't it, compared mm. to other captains mm. that we know of. He's also a bit of a father figure. I mean, we'll come on to talk mm. about that and why people perhaps maybe are as loyal and loving towards their captains. And I think it's because the captains are surrogate fathers. But <clears throat> before we get onto that, um, we still have a long list of bad dads to get through. 
Will Riker's dad. Yeah, he's See, pretty I, awful. I think Will Riker's dad's one of the worst. Carl Riker, because there's one point where he says something like, in one of the, in that episode, do you remember that yeah, episode yeah, yeah. he comes back and it's revealed that he um, had a, an affair with Pulaski. As, as women at Warp immortally put it, never forget Pulaski banged Riker's dad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the t-shirt is still available somewhere. That's kind of horrifying, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's a good t-shirt, but yeah. it's a horrifying idea. But, um, That's the takeaway from that episode. Yeah, so he says, at one point he says something like, you know, so big deal, I left you, you know, I, I stayed until you were 15. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, 15, 15. I think it was 13, wasn't it? 13. I'm not even sure it was 15. I mean, he was yeah, young, he's like, though. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I stuck around for a while. You and know, then what, I ha- what, I what like, do you want? <laughs> I have this mental image of him basically leaving, like, Riker mm. in a cabin in the woods in Alaska. Yeah, and like, know. <laughs> off you go, find your own food, you know yeah. I mean? Yeah. Hunt your own moose or whatever. I mean, it's horrible, it's horrible. And mm. he's... And his excuse is that he couldn't really... It wasn't his excuse something like he couldn't really get all, all over the death of Riker's mother. Yeah, which, that was his excuse. Which but there's is also not this, a good excuse. There's also this sense that he and Riker don't get on because they're sort of too similar somehow and he can't... Again, it's like his ego can't cope with this son who's his own person and it's kind yeah. of... You know, and even even this the fact that they end up, you know, doing their ambo jitsu combat or whatever oh, it's this kind of awful. idea that you know that, that, that uh, and, he, so and it bad. turns out he's been cheating for years right that's what Riker yeah. discovers is that his dad's actually been cheating in order to beat him and again he sort of tries to represent this as well you know I thought you'd learn more if you if you kept losing but it's like he's so threatened by his own son you know being an independent person being able to you know by the fact that realistically Riker's like in his 30s and, and fit and, and this guy's in his 60s or something and yet somehow he expects to be able to to wipe the floor with him still it's kind of there's something quite unpleasant about that and again it's the idea that ego kind of I suppose because part of being a parent is about putting your children's needs before your own do you know what I mean and putting your ego to one side and trying to kind of and valuing you know what they need more than what you need to some extent it's that's what marks these parents out as bad parents I suppose is that they're not doing that they're really just totally focused on their own ego um there's someone else we might be coming up to on this list shortly who definitely falls into that category, I think. But I think in particular, this relationship is very much a father-son, typical, mm-hmm. like stereotypical father-son conflict relationship. And part of it is that there is this thing that, I mean, I have read about this online, this idea that when you produce a child, you're producing someone that's going to replace you. Mm. You know, like you're just going to get old and you're going to get, like, I'm not looking at you while I'm saying this. <laughs> you i mean but like counting the gray hairs in my beard (laughs) um you know you're just gonna get older Mm. and you're gonna you're gonna pass your prime and Mm -hmm. you're just gonna get weaker and you're Mm. you're gonna end up obviously dying Mm. and (laughs) your child is going to is still got on the upward i mean right as an adult but you know you're Mm. essentially that your child is still on that upward journey up into becoming like their peak or whatever and Mm. their prime and and then they have all these many more years of life to live and you're producing a genetic and it's not you you're right they're not they're not the same person they're a different person but you're producing like a, a genetic i guess leftover of yourself <laughs> no that's how to put it you know what i'm saying like yeah, 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 yeah. it's like it, it's like a it's your legacy it's your I legacy that's one yeah but they're going to yeah. replace you basically but they're, but they're not their generation's gonna, that's the kind of like yeah. that's the key thing i suppose isn't it there's also of course the whole sort of oedipal thing and i think like with Riker and his dad there's definitely a kind of i mean the, the mum is dead but there's this kind of oedipal conflict yeah. going on and to some extent that is 
grounded in reality in the sense that, you know, when you're a man, I mean, you know, obviously this is talking in a sort of conventional male-female relationship <laughs> with a child or whatever. Uh, but, you know, you, you are then to some extent, maybe in competition is the wrong word, but there is uh, another being that is competing with you for the attention of the other person in the partnership. <laughs> there are these kind of elements that come into it. You, you know, you do get That's kind the of... mother. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I, and I think with, with Riker and his dad, there's definitely... They, they could have done with a session with Councillor Troy, yeah. definitely. <laughs> but unfortunately, she was too upset about Riker leaving to... You know, <laughs> get around to doing her job in that one yeah i mean and just the scenes with Riker, not more like troy and pulaski like talking mm. about them as men oh makes makes me creep up, creeps me out oh he's really sleazy as well Riker's dad he's sort of coming on to i mean he's, he's charming pulaski but he also starts coming on to troy as well and saying you know i can see my son has excellent taste and all this sort like of not cool sleazy stuff you know he's got a little bit sexist really <clears throat> yeah yeah he's awful <laughs> He's got sort of all the worst. I mean, not not that in Riker they are necessarily bad qualities, but he's got the kind of swagger and the sort of. Do you know what I mean? All, all the elements of Riker that are just about somehow Riker manages to get away with them because he's very decent and very sort of upstanding. And he's kind do you know what I mean? But he he's could sweet, very he's a sweet person. exactly. But he could very easily be a sort of a, a bit of a jock and a bit of a kind of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's there's that kind. He like he's he skirts quite close to that line sometimes. I think Riker, but he he stays on the right side of it because he is basically a really decent person. Whereas his dad sort of has all of that swagger and all of that kind of sort of arrogant charm somehow, but without the without good qualities. The, without the good qualities. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, he's willing to cheat, isn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. And exactly. Lie. Yeah, yeah. And lie, so. yeah. So, well, briefly, we can touch on some of the brief bad dads. So, for instance, Travis uh, Mayweather's father mm-hmm. in Enterprise uh, disagrees with him joining Starfleet and the two sort of part on bad terms and then they don't talk for a long time and then his father dies. So mm. that's kind of sad. But yet another example of somebody not approving of their child joining Starfleet and the way they respond to that is basically by basically mm. stop speaking to them, which is never a good thing, people. <laughs> never a good. To, you shouldn't be estranged from your family that way. Spock, who I actually think probably would be a terrible father. In, in So it's not, obviously he doesn't become a father in, I don't think he becomes a father in any movie or TV show or anything, but in one of the books, um, Yesterday's Son by Anne C. Crispin, which is uh, sort of following on from one of the original series episodes, which names, I think it's All Our Yesterdays, is it All Our Yesterdays? Oh, right, okay. The one, it's, it's the one where, where Spock goes back in, in time, an ice cave, and, and has a romance yeah, with Zara yeah, Beth, okay. Zara Beth, Got who's it. like... Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so he, uh, as a, a result of that liaison, um, there's a child born called Zar, and Spock pretty much treats Zar really, really badly throughout the whole right. episode. Refuses mm-hmm. to acknowledge that he's his son, or he knows he's his son, but he refuses to. He just he goes and gets him and brings him to the Enterprise, which is about the only nice thing he does. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't tell anyone that Zar is his son, even though they look so much alike. And um, Zar obviously has lost his mother. His mother's died by mm-hmm. that point, and the only living relative he has is Spock and actually mm. Zar forms more of a bond with McCoy because McCoy is more fatherly to him. Wow. <laughs> it, it, it will make you, it will make you want to slap yeah, Spock. You'll yeah. be like Spock, get a grip. You know what mm. I mean? And they do reconcile at the end of the novel, <clears throat> but it is, it's pretty bad to him mm. most of the time. So another bad father is Anabrantane. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to talk about Anabrantane. Anabrantane I mean, yeah. is horrendous as a father. And mm. you can kind of see why Garrick has turned out the way he's turned out mm-hmm. because he has such a bad dad. Well, he denies that he is his father for a start. Yeah. Then he tries to have him killed, doesn't he? I mean... Yeah. And then, <laughs> he know, gets him exiled, definitely. Yeah, gets him exiled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, he's a pretty shady dad, that's for sure. And he locks him in cupboards mm-hmm. when he's a child, which yeah, is why right. Garrick has a... Uh, it was Garrick, why Garrick is claustrophobic, mm-hmm. to the point where it actually causes panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And, and he, I mean, that's abusive. That's mm-hmm. actually abusive, actually. When we're talking about yeah, abusive right. fathers, that is child abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think he really acknowledges that Garrick is his son on his deathbed. Yeah. Um, I say his deathbed when he's dying. Yeah. Uh, and I've always thought that was really sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand that well, we will go and talk about Cardassians mm. and Cardassian fatherhood because we're going to go and talk about another mm. big Cardassian dad. We see quite a lot of Cardassian dads, don't we? But I don't think we see... I don't think if we see any Cardassian mums. I don't know what that is about. That they're, somehow They're in the kitchen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we, see, we, see that, we see the maid, don't we? Or the, or the you know, well, whatever she isn't is. That, but, isn't that Garrick's mother? The maid, Mila? Uh, well, in the book that's she... written by Andrew Robinson, who actually played Garrick, ah, well, he um, a, a stitch in time, <laughs> Mila is actually Garrick's mother. Mm. And Nebra Tain had an affair with his housekeeper. Right. Garrick that makes the result. perfect sense. Yeah. And then... I can't remember if that's... I, I don't... It doesn't ring a bell to me from the TV show, but... Uh, well, I mean, he's account. very Maybe fond of just... Mila in, yeah. in the TV show. Yeah, I don't think it was, sense. I don't think it was yeah. explicitly said. Right. But the reason why Garrick yeah. isn't acknowledged is because he's illegitimate, and yeah, it, yeah. I guess it would affect Anabrantain's mm. career or reputation or whatever. Mm. And that, I mean, that will bring us on to Ducat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a nicely, a nice <laughs> progression there to Ducat yeah. and Damar. So yeah, yeah, Ducat's a really bad dad. Yeah, I think that that <laughs> goes without saying. Pretty much. The, the, I mean, the interesting thing is before Zial comes along. We don't really know if Ducat's a bad dad. I think it's kind of, it's almost surprising when we discover that he is a dad. And there's that scene in um, Defiant where he basically has a go at, at Cisco for making him miss his son's birthday or something. And, he, and he's always representing himself as this great dad. And he, he uses it as this way to sort of try and bond with Cisco by saying, you know, yeah, I'm a dad, you're a dad, you, you know, yeah, we understand each other, you know, we're on the same wavelength and all this stuff. But then you're right, obviously, once we get to ZR, I mean, first of all, well, he tries to kill her, or at least he intends to kill her and then doesn't at the last minute. I mean, it's weird, you know, he is sometimes capable of being kind to her. But again, I think what it comes down to is we get this sense, as we do with Descartes, about almost everything. It's really all about his own ego. And he just cannot put his daughter before himself somehow. Do you know what I mean? And he uses her to boost his own ego. He uses her for his own agendas. You know, there's that scene that we talked about in a different episode with the dress where he's offered this dress to Kira and she rejects it. And so he goes and uses it with Zial. And, and he manipulates her so easily. She's so kind of in awe of him somehow that I suppose she's almost like she's very good for his ego really because she absolutely adores him and she gives him the benefit of the doubt on everything which no one else in Deep Space Nine you you know no one in the TV series Deep Space Nine is ever willing to do other than maybe DeMar you know so she's kind of useful to him because of that but I mean yeah ultimately he uh he's pretty crappy dad <laughs> I think part it's funny you get him and Worf in the same episode actually both doing their like crappy dad routine <laughs> some kind of you know almost compare and contrast just, this is just like the good the bad and the real dad yeah. really. I think part of it is also is because she's half Bajoran mm. and in the same way that Sarek is I think kind of conflicted about Spock being half human mm. I think Dukat, well, I would say the opposite. I think Dukat is kind of delighted that she's half Bajoran. It fits in with his idea of himself as being like somehow specially connected to the Bajoran people, other than the fact that he's a terrific dictator. Mm. I mean, it's basically that he, you know, I mean, 
He's very attracted to Bajoran women. Obviously, Ziao was a result of an affair with a Bajoran woman who he claims he loved. But like, I mean, come on, really, you know. And and so for him, it's that she's she's kind of special. And I think by the, when she when she sort of arrives, but yeah, again, you're right. It's all about his own beliefs and his own egos, mm. his own ego. So when she arrives in his life, and then she's kind of more of a permanent fixture in his life. Um, he, I sort of get the feeling he sort of neglects his own children back on. Cardassia. I think doesn't his She's marriage a- fall apart as a result? Yeah, I think yeah. I, I can't remember. My, my sense is that because there's this whole thing about the shame and what it will do to him and his career and his marriage and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, when I guess we never really see that. We never see his like official family. Do you know what I mean? And his and his legitimate children. We only really see him with Zial. And so Zial be- kind of becomes his favourite child, like his mm. his special favourite. You know, like. Um, hybrid, you know, Bajoran Cardassian mm. daughter. And you're right, it's almost, it's like a little bit like he shows her off a bit, like, mm. you know, her artwork and her connection to Kira. And obviously, Dakar is very attracted to Kira and is constantly like trying to have some sort of relationship with her. And so Zial's kind of a link to that as well. But none of this is, like you said, none of this is really about Zial being a person in her own right, having her own beliefs. And as soon as she starts, uh, challenging him and it becomes apparent that she doesn't have the same views about him mm. views of him about Cardassia or about the way they should be occupying or not mm. occupying the station she he he can't he, he, he just can't accept it he completely like sort of refuses to even believe it and that's when you know obviously she pulls pour, the alleys into her life but she also, I think she, it's like she has to be put in a box almost by both Descartes and Demar to some extent. You know, Demar has that line about her being a true daughter of Cardassia or whatever. And she said, well, clearly I'm not. But I think Descartes is also doing that because, you know, the whole thing about the painting as well. There's that scene between him and Kira where Kira says, oh, it reminds me of Vedic, who, whoever's paintings. And Descartes is like, no, 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 it reminds me of, of this Cardassian's paintings. So there's this sense that like... You know, she's allowed to be half Bajoran, but at the same time, she's expected to pick sides. She's expected to be Card. She's expected to be a Cardassian woman, you know, and not really. So you're right. She has this kind of symbolic value as this kind of hybrid, but at the same time, it's very much about picking sides. You could say the same thing is true with Sarek and Spock. That you know, Spock has this sort of symbolic value of being this half human, half Vulcan, but Sarek expects him to behave like a Vulcan. You know, he doesn't really allow much time for. Spock's human side. He doesn't accept it in the way that he accepts his wife's human you know, humanity. And obviously that comes up again, I suppose, in a different way, you know, like with Belana Torres, who again is this sort of hybrid character. And that this idea that these kind of hybrid, these sort of mixed species relationships inevitably have kind of points of conflict, but often those conflicts seem to be played out with the children more than with the partner. Do you know what I mean? We don't get the sense that Sarek and Amanda's relationship is particularly difficult. I mean, she seems willing to put up with his, you know, annoying personality traits. He seems very indulgent and loving towards her in, a, in his own kind of Vulcan way. And yet all the kind of resentment and, and difficulties get sort of directed at Spock. Yeah, it's definitely the case that the children of sort of mixed species relationships often face more challenges than the ones who are of the same species, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, and the same with Belana Torres. And actually, it seems to be particularly the fathers in this situation struggling mm. with the fact that their children are different than them, both, exactly. both biologically, yeah. but also in their choices, their life choices. And that's with, with Belana, you know, we see that that's part of the issue is her father not being able to cope with her being too Klingon. Do you know what I mean? And, and her feeling ashamed of being Klingon as a result. So the last bad dad that we're going to talk about today 
and then we'll move on to the absent or dead dads, mm. is <laughs> Tom Paris's dad, mm. Admiral Paris. Now, I wondered if Tom Paris, some of the problems that he had, especially earlier on when he was younger and some of the things that he did, was from the pressure of having, having an admiral as a father. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's that his dad actually made a mistake somewhere in, in, in his his being a father or do you think maybe it's the actual nature of the fact that he is a real senior member of Starfleet? I think his dad was a jerk and I think that <laughs> I actually think it's a bit of a failing on the part of Voyager when they came to cast Admiral Paris which was quite late on I don't feel that the guy they cast matched up to the build up do you know what I mean and actually he seemed quite nice he seemed like quite a decent guy he seemed quite forgiving by that point whereas everything we've heard up to that point is he was this real you know, hard line, kind of almost a bit of a tyrant. He was quite, he's, you know, he, he was definitely a badmiral. He was a dadmiral, badmiral, you know. <laughs> um, and I think it, it's not just the effect of having a, an admiral for a father, because Janeway has an admiral for a father. You know, she and Paris have that in common, but she adores her dad and she looks up to him and you get the impression that he's quite sort of supportive and nurturing and, and you know, all these things. And in fact, so I think, I can't remember if this is canon insofar as being on TV, but, you know, Janeway knows Admiral Paris and sh- I think she has almost a s- sort of fatherly relationship with him to some extent. Do you know what I mean? He's kind of mentored her and so on in a way that he hasn't with Tom. I mean, I think there's definitely that sense that there's... I think you're supposed to think the two fathers, the two admirals mm. had worked together in Starfleet. So Tom right. Paris's father knew Janeway's father, like they were colleagues. Yeah, well, that would make sense, yeah. I guess. I guess, even though, yeah. But so she definitely doesn't seem to have all of that baggage, you know, and the sense we get is that he was quite a good father. And certainly if you read the book Mosaic, which Jerry Taylor wrote, you know, a lot of that is about how much she loves her father and kind of, and he seems quite kind to her. Tom Paris's dad seems like someone who was impossible to please, who was always looking for, you know, again, sort of ex- ex- almost expecting the impossible from him. Do you know what I mean? And and the pressure that's put on him. And again, you know, maybe some of that is just from having this kind of illustrious parent in a sense and that's something that's hard to live up to but definitely it seemed to me from the earlier seasons of Voyager anyway that you know he was not great to Tom and that that is one of the reasons that Tom turned out the way he did and had all this kind of resentment and anger and these kind of um, you know acting up almost whether that's as a way to sort of reject him or get his attention or however you want to sort of interpret it. But, you know, he and Bellana actually have a lot in common, weirdly. Although in their relationship, it seems very much like Tom's the kind of calm, reasonable one by that point. You know, they both had this same experience of having these terrible relationships with their fathers and having all this huge amount of anger as a result, really, that sort of defines their lives up to and including the, the period where they're on Voyager. Maybe by the time we actually see Admiral Paris in Voyager, in the series, mm. he's mellowed because he has had to come to terms with the idea that his son is dead mm. or his son is lost. And maybe in a way that means that he has changed his attitude towards his son. There is that idea that like you don't know what you've got until it's gone. I mean, that's not an excuse for bad parenting. Let me just emphasize <laughs> <laughs> don't wait until your child is da- endangered yeah, before yeah. you like realise that you love them but, but that's the same thing that Balana's dad says to her actually when they speak in um, author author is he sort of says oh you know your ship you know yeah I hadn't spoken to you for 20 years or whatever it is but then your ship went missing and I thought oh you might be dead and now suddenly I want to have this relationship again so I think there she's is... quite suspicious of that isn't she I think initially well, yeah I mean, Tom have to persuade be... her to talk to him I well think. she sort of says oh, I don't have anything to say to him basically and Tom says well why don't you just listen to what he has to say and I suppose there's that sense of yes it's good that he's making the effort now I mean it's interesting 
you know, talking about Balana, obviously we, the episode lineage kind of goes into the reasons that he left. Well, I don't think it's not exactly the reasons that he left, but into the kind of marriage breaking down and the circumstances surrounding his leaving and, and the guilt that Balana feels about that and so on. Um, and how that's kind of affected her. There's no real explanation of why, therefore, he should just break off all contact with her after that point. I mean, that's, it's one thing to say that he can't cope with the marriage and he's going to leave, but it doesn't necessarily follow that just because your marriage breaks down and you, and you're the one who leaves, that therefore you have no relationship with your children. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the kind of, there's, that's almost the sort of missing, uh, element of that story. Do you know what I mean? Is, is the fact that he, she just says, well, you know, then the next day he left and he never came back. I mean, that is, a pretty extreme response to the situation that we saw him in in that episode. In the case of Balana, he leaves behind a very devastated ex-wife mm. that her like emotional state has an, an effect on Balana. So it's not just not seeing your child, it's the fact that you've left your child with somebody who is struggling emotionally. Because I think, isn't, right. it, isn't it implied that Balana's mother like is becomes more volatile after that because of the fact that she had this uh-huh. breakdown. Or maybe I'm just reading into it. I, well, don't I know. didn't pick up on that. That's interesting. Now, I mean, my sense was that it's that the, the way it seems to come across in that episode is that you know, you know, this idea that keeps being put forward is that he could cope with one Klingon woman, but he can't cope with two. And as Bilana beca- gets older What's and wrong becomes with him? more... I know. <laughs> well, and then you have Tom who has to sort of say, you know, don't worry, I can cope with three or four or, you know, however many it is, I can manage, you know, I can handle it. Um, but there's he this sort of sense enough. that... Exactly, yeah, that her dad was kind of not really up to that somehow. And so he runs away and kind of hides from it. But I mean... Seriously, yeah. think think before you leap, people. Understand, mm. if you're going to marry Klingon, that you know what you're getting yourself in for. So with with the absent dads, we've kind of covered mm. bad dads, you know, and as we can see, there's there's a lot of them. And we'll get on to talking about why there are so many bad fathers mm. in science fiction or in Star Trek. But the absent dads, so I thought maybe covering some of the absent dads, there's a lot of dead dads too. There are, And considering yeah. that we are in the future where there's advanced medical science <laughs> and people should be living i mean they say that people of my generation or the generation below me because the millennials the millennials um may live to be 100 and the generations after that may live to be more than 100 obviously you know notwithstanding climate change and stuff like that so i presumably people human beings in you know the 23rd and 24th centuries could be living to be really old so mm-hmm. it's surprising there's so many dead parents so the first one I thought we could talk about is George Kirk. Mm. Now, George Kirk, through no fault of his own, sacrificed himself to save his son. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in the Kelvin timeline, I think in the prime timeline or whatever, the regular timeline, he just dies of old age, I think. But like in the Kelvin timeline, he sacrifices himself to save his son, his baby son and his wife, which is an honourable thing to do. Mm-hmm. But it kind of scars James Kirk. It's one of the weird things. I've always had a bit of an issue with this about the Kelvin movies because I feel like it's this weird sense that, and I've never really reconciled it. Are they saying that these people are the same people as in the original series or not? Because do you know what I mean? Is is James Kirk in the Kelvin timeline in some essential? I mean, this this could be an episode of Metatrex. Is he you know <laughs> essentially the same person as as James Kirk uh, in the original series? Because it seems like so much of his personality is dominated by this issue about his absent father. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously, as far as we know, the original Kirk didn't have an absent father. You know, we don't know anything about. I don't think about his relationship with his father. Do we? We we know he had a brother and a nephew, but. Um, 
Other than that, I don't think we go into yeah, we don't, Kirk's we don't family see it. I, I mean, there's, think of, there's stuff in the but, novels about his mother, right. I think. His mother is called Wanoa. Wanoa Kirk, I think, or something. Right. And, oh, I don't, yeah, they don't really have a touch on his father. Whereas, like, with Kelvin Kirk, it's... That's his defining thing, you know, and in pretty much every film, it sort of comes up, you know, this idea that Pike says to him, you know, I challenge you to, to do better than your father, which again is this kind of idea of like, you know, almost competition uh, between fathers and sons. Then in Beyond, there's this, he reached, doesn't he reach the age that his father died at, I yeah. think, and kind of, you know, and then has that whole kind of issue. And, you know, what does it mean to be him when he's not his father? And, you know, I suppose partly it's this idea that his father did something heroic and saved lots of lives and so on. But it's also, it's implied that it's because of the absent father that he becomes this kind of reckless teenager that gets into trouble, gets into fights, that it's kind of, he goes off the rails. Very much that idea that, you know, he doesn't have a positive male role model. Whereas, you know, the original Captain Kirk did have a positive male role model. We know when he was at Starfleet Academy, apparently he was quite bookish and quite, you know, he was very diligent, hardworking, very decent, upstanding. You know, I mean, I know we have the sort of perception of Kirk as this sort of lady man, ladies man who, you know, gets into brawls yeah, and so on. But, he but at the same time... he's quite clever and intellectual. Exactly. He's he very reads, clever. He's yeah. very sophisticated, very kind of, quite a different sort of person. Yeah. So I've always sort of wondered with the Kelvin timeline, you know, are they really creating a new character I suppose what they're doing is they're trying to incorporate the kind of elements of Kirk that are understood in popular culture like the fact that he's a ladies man even if in the original series it's a bit more complicated than that and and but sort of bring all of that into his character by rebooting his character with this absent father that's kind of the the key to it all somehow in a movie as well yeah so obviously in a tv series you can write a Sometimes you can write a more complex character. Mm. I think if you're a good writer, you can probably write a complex character in a film. But you've only got a certain amount of time to tell the story. Mm. And so maybe the quickest way of getting there is showing this one incident or this one event. Mm -hmm. um, whereas over the course of a TV series, you could write Kirk as much more of a complex person like, mm. in terms of his womanizing and stuff. The, the thing is, James Kirk then goes on to become a pretty shoddy father himself. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say shoddy. I mean, he obviously very much loves his son and is grief-stricken by well, his son's death. Once he knows death. who his son is. <laughs> but, once he knows. But he is an absent father, so he falls under mm. the absent dads. And unlike his own father, George Kirk... Well, actually, this this isn't the Kelvin timeline. This is the prime... Is that how you say mm -hmm. it? Prime, prime, prime universe. He has a son called David, who he has with a lady called Carol Marcus. And... I was never sure, and we can debate this, I was never sure if he was aware of David's existence. And you think he was aware of David's existence, but was told to he stay says, away. He says, I stayed, I stayed away. I did what, doesn't he say, I did what you wanted, I stayed away. That surely means that he knew she was having a baby and she told him, I don't want you in this child's life. She does don't say something think? like, how could... You know, you were going, you were going around the universe, like going, going, right. going around the galaxy or something. Like, yeah. she says something about raising a son or, or something. It was having no a place child. to have a child. Or yeah. Whatever. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's think that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I mean, number one, I don't yeah. think she should have ever made that decision, and I don't. Yeah. I think that's unfair to him. So I think yeah. that's, on, that's on her. Mm -hmm. But I also think, why would he ever accept that? I mean, mm. why would you ever accept that? Well, that's that? the thing. He accepted it because it suited him, don't you think? But then that's about that's ego again, of, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of being given permission not to have anything to do with his son. You know, and obviously his son's grown up with this kind of idea of him, which is quite sort of resentful and quite sort of... Do you know what I mean? You get that sense from David, there's kind of a degree of hostility towards him. But he doesn't actually know Kirk is his father originally, does he? 
Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Because he has this whole thing about being Boy Scouts or whatever. I thought they only realised when they started, like, fighting with each other. Sure, he doesn't know that it's... They don't recognise each other at first, but at the same ah, time, okay. he knows who... Once he knows who he is, then he... Then he knows he's his father. Then he knows he's yeah. his father, and he knows... And he has a kind of... He's obviously built up a... Having never met him, he's built up a set of assumptions about him and, and like, an understanding of who he is. I think he's not so much of a bad father once he knows David. And he's... And he, I mean... David by that point is an adult, like a fully formed adult. So they can't mm. really have the same sort of relationship they would have had if like David had been a teenager or a child. Mm. But he does, they do have that connection at the end of Wrath of Khan where they do sort of hug each other and he sort of says, he seems to be emotionally connected to him then. Like I don't think. And he's very upset when he dies. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> which is good. I mean, that's, and he that's progress. That. He I carries guess. that on for many he films. Does. He many films. On. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, and he has that nice line in Star Trek Six about um, restoring his son's faith. So, yes, he obviously does sort of mean something to him. But at the same time, I think it's tricky. I mean, I think one of the things that's great about The Wrath of Khan is it does that sort of thing, which Nicholas Meyer was kind of doing more generally, of kind of bringing Star Trek into the real world to some extent. And so I suppose it does sort of recognise, you know, you've got this character who... Okay, so maybe it's exaggerated this idea of the ladies' man or whatever, but he, he does have a, a string of girlfriends that we see one way or another, and yet he's this kind of eternal bachelor. It kind of, in a way, it makes perfect sense that there should be a child out there that he doesn't really know anything about. But at the same time, like, it comes as a shock. To, I mean, not now, obviously, but, you know, the first time you see that film or whenever that, you know, when that film's released in the cinema, that must have come as quite a shock to the audience. Like, oh, my God, you know, Kirk's got a grown-up son. But it does make perfect sense. And I think that's quite clever, the way that that's handled. I, I sort of feel like it's it's tricky to go from how little he knows about David to... I don't mean that he shouldn't care about him being killed or whatever, but the fact that he becomes such a big part of Kirk's sort of ongoing character arc more than anything else somehow, it does sort of make you wonder what does it... What does he represent as his son? You know, they they killed my son. It's this kind of like... They've taken something from him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. More than it being about this actual person that he cared about somehow. I feel that there's two... Kirk reacts to two deaths in mm. that whole story arc. I mean, well, in all, all of the series of the films, mm. primarily reacts to two deaths. And one is Spock mm. and one is David. And I think that you can tell very clearly that he cares about Spock a lot more than he cares about David yeah. because of the way he reacts to Spock's death and the lengths he goes mm. to try and like retrieve Spock and the lengths he goes to. I mean, mm. obviously, David is in a Vulcan. He doesn't have a cat trap, blah, blah, blah. It's all semantics. Mm. I think Kirk loves Spock more than he loves David. If, if it came down to one of those impossible choices, I think it's pretty clear which way <laughs> yeah, Kirk would be going on that And one. at the end of Search, the Sp- Search yeah. for Spock, when they're on Vulcan, I think Sarek says something like, you know you lost so much or whatever, or mm. you, you sacrificed so much, your ship, your crew, your son. Mm. And Kirk is like, yeah, but I had to do it because mm. obviously they say it better than this, but I had to do it because I would have lost my soul. Mm. So it's kind of implying that like losing Spock is like losing part of his soul. Mm. Never says that about David. No. And I think the way that film is structured, there is a kind of David's death is almost the price for resurrecting Spock. Do you yeah. know what I mean? There is almost that sense that it's a kind of trade. And obviously Kirk isn't aware of that exactly. Uh, and it's not, it's not like he's making that decision, but I think in terms of the sort of story of the film, that's kind of what we're getting is, is one person has to die in order for the other one to come back to life somehow. 
And you would have more of an emotional relationship with Spock than David because mm. he spent years in Spock's company. And as we know, he only recently met David. Yeah. Like, well, like a few months ago. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that brings us on to, I mean, we would just cover some of the dead dads quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So Troy's dad, Ian Andre mm-hmm. Troy, is dead. Yeah. And Wesley's dad. Wesley's dad. Dead. Wesley's dad. Jack Crusher is yeah. dead. He was killed on an away yeah. mission. Very much. I mean, all these are kind of in the in the George Kirk mould, although obviously they came before George Kirk in terms of like heroic Starfleet kind of, you know, not quite red shirts, but like it goes with the job, doesn't it, that you're likely to die. Uh, I mean, we see it also in that, that um, although it's the mum in the episode, the bonding, isn't it, in TNG, that the, the boy who's, I think his father's already died and then his mother dies. You know, that sense that like if your parents are in Starfleet, that is, you know, <laughs> that's kind of a risk that you're taking. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're really gambling there, really, aren't they, with family mm-hmm. happiness. Beverly Crusher's dad. <clears throat> now, we never hear about Beverly Crusher's dad, but she's raised by her grandparents, which makes me think that her parents are dead. I think her parents are dead, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah, again, I'm like, you know, knowing how, you know, safe the future could be. I mean, actually, mm. Star Trek is pretty clear that the future isn't going to be safe. But we're up in space and it's we're not dealing safe with aliens. for parents. You know, we're all look, look at up. poor old Michael Burnham or, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I, I completely forgot Michael I mean, Burnham's parents are dead. <laughs> we get a lot of orphans. <laughs> Kira's dad is also dead, but I feel mm-hmm. that Kira's dad is slightly a different situation because of the fact that he was basically a civilian caught up in a, a war, in an occupation mm-hmm. of, his, of, of his world by, mm-hmm. by an aggressive species. So I feel that's slightly a different situation than Troy's dad, who just seems to be like an absent dead dad. You know, he seems, he seems a little bit more of like a... Well, Kira's dad didn't die till she was... A bit older as well. Yeah, right? she was I like mean, almost an adult at that point, wasn't she? Was she she wasn't, wasn't she? An ad- I mean, she was in the resistance by that point, yeah. I think, wasn't she? So I assume she was like in her, what, maybe early 20s, something like that. Janeway's dad's also dead. Mm-hmm. And we know that Janeway's dad died in yeah, very was, sad circumstances. <laughs> yeah. As we know from, from the novel, Mosaic. So, mm-hmm. And um, and then, then we move on to absent dads. London McCoy is an absent dad. Mm-hmm. Leonard McCoy has a daughter called Joanna, who he does. Does he mention in the series, or is it only mentioned in novels? I think is it the animated series that she comes up in. Maybe? She comes up in the animated series. I, think. I mean, he's a pretty, pretty absent dad. Yeah. I mean, I think I think at this point she's supposed to have been a teenager or an right. adult, yeah, so yeah. he's not left a small child. Yeah. But it's still not cool. No. <laughs> Um, Tuvok is absent, an absent father. That's not his fault. But though. through no choice, yeah, through no fault of his own. And I think Tuvok is probably, I would think he'd probably be quite a good dad. He seems like, yeah, I mean, he'd be a pretty boring dad. But I mean, like, if you're a Falcon and you like that, then, then he seems okay. I mean, he obviously cares for his children and he's quite sort of, he seems like quite a sort of conscientious dad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, presumably his children are Vulcan as well. So mm-hmm. Vulcan children probably expect Vulcan parents to yeah. behave in a certain Vulcan way. And yeah. it's maybe not what us humans would like, but mm. each to their own. <laughs> so let's get on to the good dads, because this is the best part of their podcast, people. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you stuck through it with all the bad, the bad fathers, because the good dads are truly very good dads. And they are a joy to watch. That's them. true. The first one I think we should talk about is Ben Sisko. Ben Sisko wins the prize. He for, wins the prize. For best Star Trek He's dad. best dad, yeah. 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 Um, so he has a son called Jake, obviously mm-hmm. all you know. Um, um, and he lives on Deep Space Nine with Jake, and he's a single father because mm-hmm. his wife has been killed by the Borg. Mm. 
So how do you think he does as a single father? A lot better than Worf, that's for sure. (laughs) I mean, I think the thing about Cisco is he has a very believable, warm, close relationship with Jake. There's no sense. Like I said before, first of all, there's no sense that he's using Jake to kind of further his own agenda. He really cares about Jake as his own person. Do you know what I mean? They have a really lovely, close relationship. They do a lot together. There's kind of... I mean, there's a lot of the kind of almost like sort of soapy stuff of kind of like, you know, Jake's a bit embarrassed by Cisco or Cisco wants to know, you know, when is he starting dating or, you you know, all this kind of back and forth and so on. But they they manage to have a relationship where even if there are moments of tension in it, they have such an obvious love for each other. Yeah. That is kind of... And the same with his father as well, actually. The three of them, you know, are really kind of this weird family where there are no women in the family. But at the same time, the men have these very kind of close, warm relationships with each other they're quite unusual i think on tv and you know is one of the highlights of deep space nine is that relationship i read an article um not long ago talking about how important it was to have ben cisco um on television because of the fact that he was uh, an example of like an african-american father mm. you know a good african-american father and a He's lot there. of yeah and yeah. a lot of representations of african-american fathers in television, especially American television, is that they are absent or they are somehow involved in criminal activities or that they are abusive or they're bad. And that actually this doesn't reflect reality, obviously. Mm. And that, um, you know, Ben Sisko is an example of a positive view or positive example of an African-American dad Mm. who's a good father. One of the things I love about the relationship between Jake and Ben Sisko is how tactile they are because Mm -hmm. you often see... Um, and I don't think this is necessarily on television. I think this is actually part of reality too. And it's probably different depending on which country you live in. You know, there's been studies done about how often people touch each other in different countries. And, you know, and they say like South America, two friends will touch each other like 20 times in an hour. You know, mm. they'll be like touching each other's hands when they're talking, whatever. And in the UK, I think it's like once every hour, mm. two friends will touch each other because like we're much more restrained, much more reserved. Um, we're not as tactile. So maybe in America, people are more tactile. But one of the things I don't really see very often is fathers being affectionate, physically affectionate with their sons. Mm. And uh, Jake, Ben Sisko is always very tactile with his son. He like he touches Jake's head, he hugs him, he kisses him. And it it's something that I think is nice to see because especially when Jake is small as well. And, and it, obviously they're in, they're in a situation where being on Deep Space Nine does pose its threats, does pose its anxieties and its stress. And it can be... Um, dangerous and so it's important for Jake to have a very emotionally reassuring and empathic father who is affectionate and raises him to be an emotionally well-adjusted adult Mm -hmm. and I think Jake is an emotionally well-adjusted adult yeah definitely I mean despite you know having lost his mother (laughs) yeah um he absolutely you, you know you get the sense that Cisco is is very dedicated to being a decent father. Do you know what I mean? That, that has a high, that's a high priority for him. I mean, he's also not just physically affectionate, but verbally affectionate. You know, he tells him he loves him frequently, you know, and you can kind of, you see that in that relationship. I was just thinking maybe we should mention, since you were talking about this idea of, you know, what it meant to have this kind of African American dad who was very present and very loving and so on. A lot of people had an issue with the end of Deep Space Nine where they felt that it kind of played into this trope of the absent African-American dad, because what happens is that just as his new child is about to be born, Cisco disappears, you know, for an indefinite period of time. And obviously we don't know 
you know, if you read the novels, I think there's sort of an answer to that. When does he come back and so on? But as Deep Space Nine ends, we actually have no resolution to that question. You know, is he going to be gone for 20 years? Is he going to be the next Kirk and, you know, come back and find an adult child? Or, you know, and obviously it's not exactly his choice. He kind of is forced to do that. But at the same time, does that play into these kind of... I, I think a lot of people felt that played into this kind of trope in an uncomfortable way that maybe the writers didn't intend. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the writers probably didn't intend that, but I can actually see why people think that. Mm. You know, it's that idea of having a child with a woman and then basically disappearing mm. even before the child is born. It's like kind of neglecting your responsibilities for mm. that like life that you've created. I'm not sure I would have made Cassidy pregnant, to be mm. honest. Uh, there's this, also this idea that, um, especially in TV series and stuff and in films, that couples aren't really like successful, legitimate couples unless they've, unless they've actually reproduced. Right. Um, and that that's kind of the end result of any sort of romantic relationship is to have a child. I mean, mm. I presumably Worf and Jadzia would have done that if Jadzia hadn't died, but they killed Well, Jadzia. and they talked about in the episode where she died, that's part of the, the sort of, it adds to the kind of tragic intensity of her death, doesn't it? Is that they just got to the point where they have discovered they can have a child together because they thought they wouldn't be able to. And then she dies. So they obviously aren't able to, you know, because she's not around anymore. And I mean, the other romantic relationships that you have in the series, like Odo and Kira, obviously they have to separate. So mm -hmm. it's either like, it does seem to be like, this is a natural progression of things. Mm -hmm. like happily, happily ever after is that this, you know, that the couple then go on to have kids. And I think at Cassidy and Cisco's age at that point, I wondered if they would really go on to, I mean, really go on to want to have kids or whether... Well, it's an accident, isn't it? Which is kind of interesting yeah. that they make it very clear they weren't intending to get pregnant. You know, yeah. he forgot to take his medicine, whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, yeah. contraceptive in the future, obviously, mm. is still really faulty. Um, <laughs> Miles O'Brien. Miles O'Brien. Mm. We need to talk about Miles O'Brien because he is probably the, right. the biggest example of, <laughs> of a father of small children. Yeah. Apart from Worf, I suppose. Yeah. In Star Trek. And he has two children, Molly and Kiryoshi. Mm -hmm. And um, Kiryoshi's a baby and Molly's like a little kid. Although Molly's born in Next Generation, so Molly is initially obviously a baby. I think Miles is a pretty good father. Yeah. I think he... I think he, I think he does struggle a little bit with family life, but I think that's because he's trying to balance like a, a quite a busy job because mm. he is like the main person on the station apart from Ron that fixes things. Mm. And so I think he's trying to balance a really busy job with the responsibility and the sort of, I don't know, pressure of having two small children. Mm. Um, but I think he's a pretty good dad. I mean, he's obviously, especially in the episode where Molly falls into that, Time portal. Time thing. portal, yeah. which, I, oh my God, I hate that episode. Mm. But um, <laughs> it's so stupid. But I mean, sad. I mean, she falls into that time portal and he seems to be very concerned about her. He's very loving, you know. He's he's very dedicated to solving things to the extent of swearing to quite a surprising level on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> and he does spend a considerable amount of time with Julian Bashir. Mm -hmm. And I wonder a little bit if that doesn't... I mean, we never really see it, but how much strain... What's the impact on his family? Yeah, with that <laughs> yeah. cause. Yeah. So, but actually, maybe that's kind of realistic, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is that kind of conflict, I suppose, if you're a father, like, that you might want to spend time with your friends, um, but you also have two small children. You said you... We don't ever get the sense that he's exactly... 
I mean, we get the sense that that's the tension with Keiko. Which I don't think we ever get the sense that Molly feels like he's not around enough. Or no, do you know what I no, mean? Yeah, you're right. And also, you know, he might have put her to bed and then gone out and hit the bar with <laughs> Julian. Do you know what I mean? It's like I mean, it's the, more his marriage. The that bar is, is only like kind of like a lift away. Yeah, it's exactly. like, like a, like a yeah. short ride away. The baby monitor probably stretches that far. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, you were going to say that one of the things that you were interested in finding out was like what Miles would be like as a parent of teenagers. Mm. I do wonder if he'd be, he's slightly... He might struggle with that. Yeah, or in some cases, people do find their children more interesting at different ages. Mm-hmm. I remember that my, my, my grandfather, who was a wonderful father to uh, my mother and her two sisters, to my aunts, he, I think he was much more interested in them when they were teenagers mm. um, and when they were more sort of older children and had opinions and they could talk to him i mean i'm not saying he didn't love them of course Mm. he did when they were little as well but my mum also has always said that she wasn't somebody who really liked small children Mm -hmm. you know of course she loved me you know took care of me when i was a baby um but she generally found me a lot more interesting when i could speak yeah and so i wondered if maybe miles might be one of those individuals who might get along better with adult children or teenage children than he does like with a very small baby. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. It's just hard to know. Like once they hit the kind of like difficult teenage strop years, <laughs> you know, how did, how did that go down? It's hard to know, but maybe, maybe, well, maybe it would all just bounce off him a bit. Cause he's a bit sort of like, you know, almost like he can't quite engage with all of that. Do you know what I mean? Also, maybe, can- maybe it'd be all right. I feel like Keiko might, She's a bit more highly strung, maybe. You know. Yeah, and I feel like Keiko does a lot of the work, family yeah, family does. load. Yeah. yeah, so maybe it's like that's one of the reasons why we yeah. don't see him as much as a father. He's maybe a better dad like than he is a husband in some ways. Yeah, you know what I mean? he's arguably. <laughs> yeah, he's a, oh yeah, he can be a bit of a bit of a poor husband at times, can't mm. he? And there's that weird situation where. Kira ends up carrying his child mm. for a while and there's mm. like this attraction between the two of them and I think it's kind of strange that someone would I don't know that, that, I always thought it was a bit of a weird development yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that he might be attracted to Kira simply because his genetic material was in her womb I it's, mean it is weird I, I mean it's interesting I, I, I don't, he becomes to, sort of protective of her I suppose yeah and I suppose they're supposed to have Which got to sense. know each other yeah and yeah. maybe he's attracted to her personality or something but I always was like I was like dude I always thought that was weird it's like <laughs> you've you, got a wife you knew her pretty well to begin with you know yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so, other fathers, which we can very quickly pass over, is um, Sulu. Is supposed to, seems like a good dad. He's affectionate mm-hmm. dad to Demora in Star Trek Beyond. He's shown um, that's true. Taking uh, well, at least picking her up and giving her a hug and kiss. And mm-hmm. he's obviously thinking about her when he's in, in the ship. He's got a picture. He's got a picture. Yeah, <laughs> by his by his little like con- console. She seems to be fairly pleased to be known as a Sulu in Star Trek Generations. Um, so mm-hmm. I made, I assumed that she probably wasn't didn't have a problem with being associated with her father. Mm. Riker in the Titan novels seems like he's a good father to his daughter. Mm-hmm. So despite having like probably one of the worst fathers out there, he has a. And of course, this is Star Trek, so people tend to have children very late in life. <laughs> and he has a daughter with Troy called yeah. Natasha. And although she's quite a small child in right. the Titan novels, he seems pretty affectionate towards her. He also seems like quite a nice dad in the episode. Is it called Future Imperfect? You know, the one where he, he has this sort of fantasy that he's in the future and that, in fact, it's an alien who's kind of yes. manufacturing he's got it a and son. he has a son in yeah. that. Yeah, you're right. Um, and a, an absent dead wife. He seems like quite a good dad <laughs> there. And then, of course, there's also that, uh, in Rascals, there's that bit where he has to sort of pretend to be Picard's dad. That's quite sweet, you know. 
That's kind of like funny, sit your yeah. my number one dad. <laughs> number one dad. I actually really love Which that. Which someone episode. should make a, a Father's Day card <laughs> with that on it. I know a lot of people hate that episode, but really? I, I just, it makes me smile every time I watch it. So, in similarly, Picard goes on in some of the novels, I know it may not be canon, um, to have a son with mm-hmm. Beverly Crusher called Rene Picard. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether or not he's a good father. I mean,. But we'll go on to talk about... Well, how... in his fantasy in Generations, he's a good father. He's a good father, he? yes. He's like a very nice he's a, dad he's in, a... in that kind of fantasy sequence. He's kind of a sweet Victorian father, which doesn't seem to be a mm. contradiction in terms, really. But You're right. He's a Victorian father, but a very sort of gentle, calm... Gentle. Reasonable, you know, yeah. Not stern. And we'll go on to talk about how, as a captain, he's more of a father. But Tom Paris... Mm-hmm. I think Tom Paris is a good dad, actually. He mm. seems... Like, I mean, we only see him be a dad for a very short period of time, but he seems pretty enamoured with his baby. I think you also get the sense that maybe for him it represents something in terms of like, because his arc on Voyager is very much about kind of growing up and being a responsible adult and so on. And he has that line in Endgame to Harry, doesn't he, about being... Is it in Endgame? Well, he's still not being Captain Proton anymore, basically. Yeah. Not saying I'm about to be a dad, you know, I'm responsible grown up. This is what my life is like now. Uh, he's kind of very much rejected his earlier sort of wayward youth and And i think maybe having a child represents growing up to him to some extent even more so than getting married or whatever does but he's not doing it like like sort of like i've got to sell down now kind of resigned he's doing it kind of he's doing it willingly like yeah you're right he wants to he wants to do it yeah Yeah. you're right absolutely which is a good sign jonathan archer's father who's called henry archer Mm -hmm. we see very early on in enterprise and we don't really see much of afterwards because he dies i think he Mm -hmm. yeah again he's another dead dad but he's shown as being a good father like he's spending time with his son, he's doing some sort of mm. craft, sort of hobby with his son. Um, he, he's sort of encouraging his son to go into space and mm-hmm. to think about um, warp capabilities and all sorts of stuff like that. So I guess in a way, sort of educating him slightly. But is there something about that relationship? Yeah, you're right. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> Doug At the like, same time, hold on. Well, no, it seems it seems to me like like. <laughs> Archer has a bit of a chip on his shoulder or a bit of a kind of the fact that his dad has died and the fact that his dad was this important figure. He's got this thing to live up to. Do you know what I mean? And he's got these sort of issues of his own. And he even says, you know, after the whole Zindi uh, business in the third season, doesn't he have, he has a line saying, you know, I, I basically I want to be the explorer that my father wanted me to be or something like that. Like he feels he's failed oh, so he's, to live up to his father's expectations. So he's got expectations this like, pressure of, of a, of like a dead dad's expectations. Yeah. And you can't necessarily pin that on the dad because maybe if the dad was still alive, he'd be more laid back and like, you know, no, you do your own thing. You know, you did great. Blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, the fact of having this kind of revered dead father seems to add a lot of pressure for him. And there's also this weird sense that he got chosen for that job because of his father almost do you know what i mean in broken bow there's definitely this sense because there's that line about admiral forrest i think says you know how appropriate it is that henry archer's son is the one commanding this mission now i know that's maybe he just means it's appropriate in some kind of like what a fortuitous coincidence and isn't that nice and kind of poetic justice and all this sort of thing but at the same time it sort of feels a little bit like I don't know, I always sort of wonder, has Archer been chosen as a sort of PR stunt or something? Do you know what I mean? Has, has that played into it, the fact of that's who his dad was? Is that one of the reasons that he was chosen for that job? In which case, that's a little bit uncomfortable in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because his dad was originally supposed to go into space, right? His dad was supposed to... Wasn't his dad supposed to be in charge of, like, the... the like... He was like an engineer, though, wasn't he? He just but he sort of was... built the engine. 
but isn't there something about the fact that he died before he before could, it could be used? Yeah, yes, definitely. And that's because the Vulcans held the humans back yeah. development wise. Yeah. So maybe perhaps he did die with a certain level of disappointment, you know. Mm-hmm. And well, he never saw his life's work come to fruition kind of thing yeah yeah and you know I, I think I read somewhere although I'm not sure it's canon or anything but that his father died like of some sort of disease where so he doesn't die in some accident or anything he dies uh, like through, like with like dementia or something oh right or he basically by the end of it he's a he's, he's a very old or mm-hmm. not old but like he's not the same he's, he's, mm. he's ceased to really become himself maybe I don't know mm. um, senile or something so there is that I there is there is I agree. There's that idea of like a great person mm. sort of being diminished, mm-hmm. kind of falling from what they could have been, mm. and so in a way that's pressure then for Jonathan Archer to bring bring the reputation back, kind of. Do you know what I mean? Like to sort mm. of to sort to of to give a happy end to that story. Yeah, to give yeah. a happy end to that story. Mm. Yeah, and but then that's not really about Jonathan Archer himself, then, is it? Yeah, mm. again, it's not really about the individual. It's not about the child or the mm. person or the child as an individual. It's about like they're sort of in kind of wrapped up or swept up in the legacy of their parents, like the sins of the father visiting mm. on the son or whatever. The last two sort of, I mean, good fathers. I, I think we could, before we go on to talk about data mm. and his brief stint of fatherhood, I wonder if we should talk about Rom. Mm. Because I do think despite the fact that he is a kind of strange, strange dad um, in the sense that Nog seems to be much more, capable than his own father mm. um, in many situations I feel that he does defend Nog when it's important mm. doesn't he, he sort yeah of he's inc- quite supportive of him encourages him going into Starfleet yeah and he's proud of him yeah definitely and sort of sticks up for Nog when it comes to Quark as well yeah who isn't always so supportive of his family members yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no definitely definitely that's true and then I suppose Data is like the most awesome dad of all time, apart from Cisco. For about a week. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it'd be more awesome if he could have, like, I don't know, somehow yeah. technologically kept Lal alive. But despite having quite a weird father himself. Yes. I mean, Data's definitely got. You know, there are some kind of weird issues going on there as well. But but yeah, you're right. And I suppose in terms of this this sort of recurrent theme of like trying to you know, the bad fathers trying to control their children, sort of use their children, I suppose. It's interesting with Data, he, um, you know, he lets Lal choose her own gender, he lets her choose her own species. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's very much, like, totally, from the get-go, treats her as an autonomous being with her own kind of, you know, he'll sort of go along with her, he'll guide her, he'll give her advice and so on, but he's not going to control her in any way at all. You know, in contrast to the the Starfleet people who want to control her and take her away and so on, you, you know, he's the one who's kind of trying to let her make her own decisions and so on. And I suppose that's part of his way of being a sort of caring parent is to kind of protect her, but at the same time, not compromise her freedom. But then it's easier for him to do that because of the fact that she she's born... Mm as like a sort of cognitive autonomous being. Mm. Whereas when a humanoid has a child, I say yeah. humanoid, like they actually other humanoids exist other than humans. But like when a human has a child or yeah. as we all know, um, you're basically. Or a, any animal. Any animal. Yeah. yeah. With the exception, I suppose, of some reptiles or something. You're most people, um, <laughs> most people, <laughs> the, the baby is born with basically very little personality yeah. formed initially. I mean, I suppose you get to see the personality quite quickly right away in some some way or another, but 
you're having to do so much care and like caring and, and work to take care of this child that but it's also unable to assert its independence it's not going to be off snogging commander Riker, you know <laughs> if you turn your back what for five minutes. a terrifying thought <laughs> man that is scary um, but do you know what I mean like it's it's completely dependent on you to a greater yeah. extent than Lal is early on you're right I so mean, when your child is 15 when your yeah. son is 15 and he's telling you like I, you know I'm an mm. independent person blah blah blah, blah mm-hmm. you will still also have that memory of him as a two year old yeah when he needed everything done for him and also mm-hmm. when he was also not able to like deal with his emotions in like the way a mature adult would mm. or, or able to explain exactly how he felt or what he wanted because he's not reached that stage of development yet. So it, I think, and I think you find this with adult parents and adult children, adult parents still treat their adult children sometimes quite badly because mm. they're still treating them like they're like children, like children, yeah. but that's mm. because they remember them as children and mm. they, because they did so much taking care of them. Whereas I guess with data is it's like, bam, he has like this semi adult mm. daughter. Um, and, and then it's really up to him to instruct her and, and be protective of her. Mm. I mean, not saying he's a bad father, but like, it's a different kind of, it's like a sort of suddenly semi formed, yeah. um, sure. like offspring right in front of you. Mm. The um, the strange dads, which we'll touch on briefly, Flox. Uh, Flox has kind of a sad situation because he doesn't speak to some of his sons. I think he has two sons. He's estranged from at least one of them. Yeah, yeah, and he's upset about that. He's obviously distressed about yeah. that. But he's a kind of a, it's a sort of strange situation because he has several wives, and because of the way mm. the Denobulan family dynamics work, he's technically the father to loads of children. Mm. Although I think biologically he's only father to like four or five. Yeah. I can't remember, but yeah, you're right. You know, so, whole... But yeah, again, this is another example in Star Trek of a father and son estrangement. And mm-hmm. we got, we're going to have to ask ourselves, like, why is this such a recurring theme? Trip is briefly a father mm-hmm. um, to a hybrid child, a human Vulcan hybrid. And he seems pretty devastated when she dies. Mm, definitely. So I think Trip would, be, would have been a good dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, we don't get to know because he obviously ends up being blown up afterwards. Odo has a brief stint as a parent to an infant changeling. Yeah. And he's pretty devoted. He's very good. Yeah, you're right. That's true. And there's very, and with Odo, there's very much that sense of he doesn't want to, he's, he's very consciously reacting against the way that he was brought up by Dr. Mora, who is sort of represented as his father. Um, you, you know, and, and this idea of these different models of parenting, you know, one being very kind of strict and like, and it's quite, but it's interesting that episode. He's, yes, he's very devoted. He's very kind. He's very sweet and so on. But at the same time, the episode does kind of come down, not quite on Dr. Mora's side, but basically it forces Odo to recognize that, that there's some validity in both positions. Do you know what I mean? Because he does end up having to push harder than he wants to. Do you know what I mean? And to kind of have to adopt some of that, which is, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure about the moral of that episode, but it, it definitely is kind of like, from a character development perspective, it, it works in terms of him trying to kind of come to terms with his own father and kind of understand him more. I suppose that's what you get there, is this sense that like maybe Odo has judged him too harshly and that he can kind of sort of forgive him a bit and they can both, do you know what I mean, sort of heal that those wounds from that past relationship, which, you know, previously has been very uh, destructive. I mean, we saw in the other episode that he appears in, Odo turns into this weird sort of blobby beast monster thing as a result, doesn't he? <laughs> it goes smashing around the station. So um, so he's definitely someone who has a lot of unresolved anger. 
from his relationship with his father. That's also another unique situation in terms of species. So it's a mm. little bit like, um, you know, the relationship with Belana Torres and her father or mm. Spock and Sarek because of the fact that, like, Odo and his, like, adoptive or surrogate father mm. are completely different species. Mm. And one of the reasons why Dr. Morrow had to do some of the things he had to do was because Odo was, like, a completely different kind of, like... Mm so different that he couldn't communicate with them I mean it wasn't like Odo sort of sat up in his petri dish and was like hey you know I mean he had to do things in order to get sort of a response from Odo and like test him and stuff and yeah and also it's kind of complicated by the fact that Odo was a scientific experiment of Dr. Mora's so you could say essentially like almost like an extension of Dr. Mora's like professional like pride or ego ego, yeah yeah so but there is that sense that they're definitely sort of semi-estranged, aren't they? And that Mora feels that Odo walked out on him and kind of yeah. cut off all contact with him. And he feels hurt about that because he he obviously doesn't just see him as an experiment. He does see him as a child almost, you know, and, and so he feels hurt that Odo's sort of rejected that. And then we have Bashir's dad. Mm-hmm. Who... He's a bit hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But another person... I sort of feel like he's sort of... He sort of means well, but he's kind of, yeah, he's, he's not great. <laughs> I mean, another situation where the parents made a decision yeah. about the child um, and changed the child mm. or altered the child's life drastically because mm. of, I mean, did they really do it for his own good or did they really do it because they didn't want to have a child that wasn't going to achieve what they wanted a child to, their child to achieve? I mean, mm. it is a sort of extension of their own ego as well. We're getting a running theme here, aren't we? Well, you can, I mean, <laughs> becoming a parent, you, you have a lot of responsibility to make, you know, making decisions on behalf of someone who can't make the decision for themselves. Do you know what I mean? And what do you, I mean, like at the moment, for example, we're looking at different nurseries, you know, which nursery do we send our son to? And the nurseries are attached to school. So then you start thinking, well, if he goes to this nursery, he's probably going to go to this school. And so weighing up the pros and cons, you know, the pros and cons for him, also the pros and cons for us in terms of like, you know, convenience of getting to these places and so on. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a whole, it's quite an unusual phenomenon to be making decisions on someone's behalf to that extent. Do you know what I mean? And that is one of the difficult things that comes with being a parent, I suppose, is you know, trying to make the right decision for everyone in a situation like that. And you're right in a, but, but then, but then the, the bad thing to do is to kind of not be honest about it. So I suppose say with Belana in lineage, she's representing it to everyone as if she's making these decisions for the benefit of her unborn daughter. But in fact, it's clearly all about herself, you know, and she even said at one point, she even says when the, the doctor, when they realize she's tampered with the doctor's program to get him to do this totally unethical procedure, she, even then she sort of desperately saying, no, I improved his program. I just upgraded his program. You know, it's better now. It's a better program than it was before. And there's definitely this idea that she is, you know, that it's totally wrong what she's doing, trying to manipulate her daughter in order to suit her own. Because that is literally, I mean, mean, it's the opposite of what typically we think of someone who wants their child to be a mini version of themselves and so on, and is kind of forcing them to go into a certain career that they might not be interested in because that's the career that they wanted to have or that they do have or whatever. But at the same time, she's still very much not recognising the child as its own being until the very end of that episode where she sort of sees it again and she kind of accepts the child on its own terms. I think there's also a reverse of that as well, which is when your parents become very elderly, sometimes Mm. you might have to make Mm. decisions for them that you would never 
for C or, mm. the, or that you, you you know that you wouldn't normally make for other people yeah and there's that situation as well where you know we see very much our mother and fathers as our mother and fathers rather than as adult individuals themselves mm-hmm. I mean uh, I remember years ago having a conversation with my husband about our own parents and us kind of looking at each other at one point and just sort of saying well you know they are adults mm. they're adults and they make mistakes and like you know you hold up your parents uh, for most of your childhood up on a pedestal unless of course you do have a bad parent mm. or bad father then sadly a lot of people do and so they they suffer in childhood because of that but if you have a good father or a good mother and i'm very lucky to have very good parents i did for many years mm. sort of see them as these like all-knowing all-powerful beings you know like my mm. father pretty much is my father's very smart and so i, I thought any problem he could solve mm. you know he could tell me anything that i wanted to know and um and then obviously when you become an adult you sort of, sort of see them as real people and that they do have like their faults and they do have their virtues and they do have they do make mistakes and sometimes parents you know have made very big mistakes mm. and sometimes it's hard to reconcile in your head you know like this person who is supposed to be like this kind of senior sort of authority but also kind of like a larger than life kind of character in my life is also just a regular person just like anyone else and mm. and I think you only really realize that when you become a parent yourself or when you become an adult yourself mm. and then you're making decisions as an adult in mm. your life um, and also making mistakes and doing good things and all sorts of stuff so yeah I think that one of the things that's interesting about Star Trek is it does address these sort of questions about family and these these uh, sort of issues to do with family dynamics and the mixing of juggling um, and like adult family relationships as well. So adult children with their adult parents mm. and, and also the mix of like dealing with a career as well as having kids. It isn't so much, I think, about addressing the relationship between small children and their parents. And perhaps mm. we could have done that a bit more. I don't know. But in, in recent years as well, like especially with like Discovery, it's much more like adult-child with an adult parent, like we think of Burnham and, mm. and Sarek. But, and then of course there's surrogate fathers, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So there's the captains and the captains really are like surrogate fathers to their crews. So mm. in a way that the, the crews do, I wondered if some of the adoration and some of the support and loyalty that Starfleet officers show to their captains can be, is born out of the fact that so many of them have such bad fathers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's why they run away to space, I suppose, to get away from family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly Picard, I think, is the kind of archetypal, like, dad figure. Janeway is obviously very maternal. Um, I don't know whether Kirk, does Kirk feel like a father exactly? He feels like a sort of, more like an older brother or something, maybe. Yeah, he's you know a bit what too I mean? young. He's a bit too young yeah. and kind of... Um, and because there's McCoy there, and McCoy, yeah, McCoy just seems so much older than he, yeah. than Kirk, and so that makes Kirk seem younger. It's true. I think so much of Kirk is tied up in being young and, and virile and kind of not yet being a sort of. I mean, obviously he is old enough to be a dad, but you know, and I think William Shatner was a dad while he was yeah. making Star Trek, as far as I know. But he he seems like a sort of young single guy, you know, very much. Um, we also see him like whereas kissing a lot of women and. Yeah. When, a father, when a father is going around kissing a lot of women yeah. randomly around the universe, yeah. it doesn't seem like a very fatherly thing to do, no, does it? I mean? no. Whereas Picard is very much like, you know, in, in his slippers and, and with his good book. And, you, you know, he's like the kind of the dad who's sort of waiting up when you get home late. You, do you know what I mean? Like that kind of archetype. I don't know about Archer. 
I mean, again, he's well, he, he, he's, he's older, he's old enough, yeah. but at the same time, he feels his his personality feels quite young. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's that weird thing that, like, in that episode, First Flight, where we go back in time and we see Archer. I don't know how many years earlier it's meant to be with his friend. Uh, I always think it's kind of weird because, first of all, he doesn't look much younger. I mean, Scott Bakula is in amazing, amazing shape for his age, but at the same time, he don't, they don't manage to make him look any younger somehow. And also, he doesn't really act any younger because he has this sort of boyish enthusiasm anyway, even as a, you know, whatever he is in his mid-40s or something in Enterprise. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's kind of hard. He can't really play... He's almost sort of maxed out on the kind of naive, youthful stuff. He can't really play that. He doesn't really Do you have. Know any, what I mean? He doesn't really have any gravitas. Exactly. Compared yeah. to Picard, I think. Yeah, you're right. And Cisco has gravitas, I suppose, and he is he is maybe. But at the same time, I feel like his crew are a bit. They feel a bit more sort of capable. <laughs> But, I mean, obviously, the, the Enterprise crew are perfectly capable. I, I don't know what it comes down to. You know, he, he has them all around for dinner. He kind of treats... Maybe, maybe he seems more like an equal somehow. Yeah. He treats them a bit more like equals. And he they treat him more like an equal. He also started out as a commander. That's true. Yeah. So maybe that makes a difference. Whereas Picard is very much like... I mean, you talk about someone on a pedestal. Picard is the ultimate man on a pedestal. You know, to anyone who's ever watched Star Trek, for a start, he's like the 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 real kind of ideal somehow yeah. the ideal captain the ideal father the ideal human being essentially he's kind of the ideal evolved human being and i think that definitely ties into that sort of sense of him as this kind of you know calm wise you know older person that you go to for advice and for help with things and you know to make the difficult decisions and so on so before we like leave the subject i mean there are lots of bad fathers in sci-fi. Obviously, there's the ultimate bad father, which uh, needs no introduction, but um, Darth Vader in Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, in Rogue One, there was an absent father. I'm not sure Han Solo is a bad father, but he definitely... Didn't work out all that well. <laughs> didn't work out. I mean, yeah, his son killed him. So, And the most recent version of Lost in Space, there's a father who's portrayed as being rather... Lacking basically, mm-hmm. and has to sort of redeem himself and become a better father. You see, that's the sort of thing you you can get that story. I mean, you get that a little bit with Worf. I don't know that you'd ever get a story about a bad mother having to redeem themselves and be a good mother. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of almost accepted that men are going to struggle to be good fathers, and that they're going to have to. Do you know what I mean? There's going to be a kind of process there that they kind of screw up to begin with, and then they learn in a kind of lovable way to. I think, be a better person. Do you know what I mean? I think Whereas, if you had a bad mother, I think she would be unredeemable. Exactly. I think in the eyes of the it's world... It's seen as unforgivable. Unforgivable, somehow. you know. I mean, yeah. there is that very famous book, When You Talk About Kevin, which is yeah. about a bad yeah, mother. exactly. You yeah. know, and um, she's like... I mean, you know, she's responsible for her son, basically, and her yeah. son goes off and kills a whole bunch of people. So that's a bad yeah. mother, right? Spoiler alert. Uh, best mother. <laughs> yeah, sorry. If you, you know, I mean, you can read it if you want. It's kind of devastating, but yeah, you know, yeah, a bad a bad mother is something that is like you know, unforgivable. Mm. Um, whereas a bad father, I mean, you're right. If he redeems himself, or he puts on a whole bunch of strange outfits and decides mm. to do martial arts with you in the holodeck, <laughs> <laughs> um, you could kind of find some sort of common yeah. ground, and you can grudgingly like you know man hug, you know, mm. like you know, shake each other's hands, slap each other on the back, and mm. go go your separate ways. Whereas a bad mother, you know, a bad mother will. I mean, children will turn to drink and drugs and they will <laughs> end up being like psychos. If there's about, I mean, think about Norman Bates mm. in Psycho. 
Mm. You know, I mean, I don't know if he had a bad mother, but it's kind of implied that he probably had a bad mother. She was a she was a sort of semi abusive mother, and he turned out to be a serial killer. So you know what I mean? So I think people are much mm. more harsh about yeah women who perhaps maybe are perceived as bad mothers. But what I what I wanted to ask was why are we so interested in bad fathers, and why why in Star Trek specifically are bad fathers such an issue? And I had this theory. Mm. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I feel that in Star Trek there's overbearing mothers, mm-hmm. like Laxmana Laxmana Troy. Ersi Dax have an overbearing mother. Ezri's mother Ezri's is, yeah, she's not very nice. And uh, so there's yeah. overbearing mothers or, or uh, sort of... Sort of pushy. Pushy mothers. Yeah. O- overly emotional mothers. Yeah. And then there is distant, absent or bad fathers. Yeah. Peppered with a few good fathers. And I thought this was because the majority of Star Trek is probably written by men. Yeah. And I wondered, what is this, a male experience? Like, why are we so interested in bad fathers? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that is a big part of it. And obviously it is largely written by men. I mean, is it because that's what most writers relate to in their own lives? Is that really the case? Or is it that, is it just about drama? And I mean, you know, if you look at the kind of backstories, obviously when you create a character for a TV series, you want to give them an interesting backstory. I mean, the next generation for the sort of most optimistic, cheery kind of Star Trek in some ways the backstories of that entire cast of characters are all pretty awful. They've all been orphaned or they've got, you know, they've got all kinds of terrible baggage Natasha going on. Natasha Yar. Well, yeah, exactly. Oh my God, it's a horrible backstory. You know, I mean, so is it partly that? Is it partly also a way of like employing interesting character actors to come on now and then and and do a bit of drama that way? I, I suppose may, maybe it's seen as a bit boring if they have good relationships with their parents. I mean, Jane Austen famously also always wrote I think every Jane Austen heroine has a bad relationship with her parents doesn't she and it's I suppose it's a way of making someone seem kind of special because they've kind of rejected something do you know what I mean it kind of sets them apart from where they've come from it gives you the sense that or even like not that she had a bad father but Belle in Beauty and the Beast that opening song in Beauty and the Beast, everyone's going on about how different she is. She doesn't fit in here. She's different. She's special. She's, you know, and it sort of tells you, right, this character is someone worth, they're exceptional. And definitely in Star Trek, there's this sense, particularly in Next Gen, of, you know, these are all exceptional people. They're on the best ship in the fleet. They're kind of the the best of the best, the cream of the crop. So maybe it's partly one way of kind of signaling that, that they've kind of, they've detached from something from where they came from. I don't know. But also, you know, just... Black sheeps of the family. Yeah. Or they're the white sheeps of the family, the way that... I mean, that's the thing, is from our perspective, they're the heroic ones. They're the ones who are better than... You know, Picard is better than his family of grumpy, difficult, aggressive, resentful wine uh, wine farmers. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Because he's actually gone off and done something with his life, you know. So there's that sense of kind of differentiation. But I don't know whether that really accounts for it because you know and why it's particularly associated with fathers rather than mothers typically i mean wax armor is a unmissable but maybe unusual example if you know what yeah i, mean. I suppose there we, have, many we haven't talked about beverly crusher i mean mm. we, we could go, you know if you guys mm. like this episode we can talk about mothers <laughs> and an mothers about another mothers one too. but yeah there i guess there is this element that um classic character development in any tv show one of the things that springs out of mm. is family relationships or relationships between parents and children and that's an easy way i think as well of adding color to a character adding color to to, to a personality mm-hmm. i also think there's an element here especially specifically to do with sci-fi mm-hmm. which is when you're out there traveling around the galaxy saving saving the world fighting you know i mean in guardians of the galaxy peter quill is an orphan mm-hmm. and his father is a well, spoiler alert 
his father is a widow. <laughs> I won't go, she won't tell you too much. <laughs> but you can't have people out there doing amazing things, being superheroes, having magical powers, fighting base, you know, forging brilliant scientific careers and doing all this and doing all that without having to let go of, like you said, family connections, like cutting the ties that they have with things that are going to keep them earthbound. Mm. And also as well, it's really hard for uh, uh, to have a story uh, of people having adventures in space if they've got to carry around a small child. Mm. You know, I mean, how different would the Enterprise be if James Kirk had a little son on board? <laughs> little David <laughs> in you the nursery. What? And yeah. there's a reason why they call it yeah. set- settling down when you have kids, because... Yeah. The whole idea is you're supposed to sit down, mm. be with the kids, and not go anywhere. You're not supposed to get into a get a rocket and go out in space, mm. which does make me wonder a little bit how the children of NASA astronauts feel. You know, I mean, if mm. you're going to go spend time on the international space station for any length of time, you're going to be away from your pe- your mm. kids. So, and like, the same is true if you work on an oil rig. Or, I mean, there are people whose jobs oil rig's not as exciting though. <laughs> no, I know, but I mean, like you're, you're equally uh, remote for. a, a no offence to oil rig. Uh, maybe less dangerous, although there are risks on an oil rig. But I mean, it's only when yeah. it's only when the enterprise starts becoming more of a ship with civilians and families yeah. aboard that we start to see that people are actually able to have family relationships. But in and the original series, they're very much individuals. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting that it took quite a while to you know until they brought Alexandra on board, they didn't really make the most of that in terms of having any of the main characters have a family and you know it's only when we get to deep space nine that we have a main character from the get-go is a you know two in fact who have families with them you know and that's quite a departure i suppose you know then in voyager obviously we get naomi wildman she's the sort of token child therefore the kind of token family but i mean it is interesting there's maybe also something about the fact that you know in star trek the the ship is represented as a family in itself do you know what i mean and the group the kind of senior staff will become like you know brothers and sisters to each other and the captain is this sort of mother or father figure to them there is this kind of like almost family like you know more so than just a bunch of friends there is this kind of sense that they often seem particularly something like voyager they they often talk about it as being more like a family well it's explicitly mentioned actually in several several mm. different situations in star trek flocks mm. mentions it in enterprise that mm-hmm. he gained a family through mm-hmm. being on the enterprise you know i mean in, in the kelvin timeline Khan refers to his crew as his family. Mm. Like, what wouldn't you do for your family? Like, he's mm. saying it's Kirk, and Kirk obviously thinks of his. I mean, he calls Spock his brother. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. you're right. They are. They are become. And you couldn't. Maybe you can't forge that sort of relationship with people who aren't biologically related to you if you've got like a biological family trailing behind you. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I actually would disagree with that. Actually, I think you can form family relationships with people who aren't necessarily related to you, even when you have your own biological family to like care for. But it maybe it strengthens the bonds mm. amongst crew uh, crew members on ships if they don't have like their children right there, mm. you know, or their spouses or whatever. So, but there is an extraordinary number of bad fathers in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that, I mean, please do tell us if you have any theory as to why this might be, mm-hmm. but I do feel that at the end of the day, after a while, it does become a rather sloppy way of giving a character depth. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps maybe they should try maybe sometimes with a bit more, because there is drama between Jake and Cisco, mm-hmm. Jake and Ben, and it's also, but they also have a very good relationship. And I think mm. you can have a realistic father and son, mm. realistic husband and wife, realistic mother and daughter, or whatever mm. relationship, without it being 
always contentious mm. and there's this idea that drama is always content it's always like contention always equals drama mm. or drama equals contention like either way so i sometimes feel that's a very quick way of creating drama in the space of i suppose they've only got like 50 minutes to tell a story mm. so but you're right not only do you know jake and ben sisko have a good relationship but ben and joseph sisko have a good relationship so from the point of view of a main character who has you know a positive family member uh, relationship that's also a good example although you know it's interesting this idea about like orphans and so on before ben sisko had a father who was an interesting character in his own right ben sisko appeared to have a dead father so you know in those early episodes of deep space nine there's one where he talks about his father and it's very clear from the way it's written that the intention is his father is dead and then and then the next time we hear about him he, he's really sick i think and then the first time we actually see him on screen i think is in Homefront. And there's all this discussion about his illness and how he's sort of gradually recovering. So it's almost like this, they sort of unorphan Cisco somehow <laughs> in order to bring this dad character. So obviously when they started writing Deep Space Nine, <laughs> they weren't intending to have, you know, older family members in that family. They were kind of, the assumption seemed to be that he didn't have any. Mm. And then at some point someone decided that actually, you know, maybe they could cope with that. That's a good, it was a good decision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's a great character. Definitely a good decision. Well, it has been really fun taking a look at good dads, strange dads, rubbish dads in Star Trek. But this is not the only subject that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! Do you have to have the stick to be the grand proxy? The scepter? Yeah. I see it as a walking <laughs> stick. <laughs> um... Is that supposed to be the Grand Negus's um, scepter? Is that the actual one? Oh my it's a gosh. replica, of course, but is it supposed to be the actual one? I don't know, but what it reminds me of totally is old Biff from Back to the Future, old Biff, <laughs> yes. with his his cane that he hits people on the head with. That is totally it. Hello! <laughs> McFly! Big McFly, think. Standard Orbit. People are coming over and they're introducing people to him and it's my turn. And he goes, Steve, uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy, I want you to meet the, the host of the convention. This is Stephen Lance. And he goes, please to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, Mr. Dewan. And he goes, hi, Steve. Nice to meet you. And he's like, what? What? <laughs> you, mean, you mean you don't talk like that? The 602 Club. In particular, I noticed that the most with either Elastigirl or Violet, because it's sort of like you and I were talking about before the show, it, Helen, Elastigirl, really shows that she's Elastigirl not only in what she does as a superhero, but in showing the things that a regular mom has to deal with, you know, whether you're a single mom or, you know, a, a big family, it's something that um, traditionally they're trying to show that um, a, a parent goes through. Warp 5. Right, because Frankenstein himself like it doesn't really mistreat the monster right they've got him locked up chained up and whatnot right because he's they don't know what to do with him i guess like now that i've made this corpse well now what right like like yeah. you know it's not like a puppy never right? thinking like, about the end game just like all those you know master villains it's like yeah you uh, you rule the world and then what right and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, 
be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation at the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook and you can find me on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. My co-host is Duncan Barrett and you can find Duncan on Twitter at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com trekfm. Now I'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer, Amy Nelson. You can find Amy Nelson on the Earl Grey podcast on Trek FM. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.